Now, this morning we're going to pick up our studies in the Gospel of Luke. We had sort of left them off before a lockdown, and because of the sort of bitsy nature of um, our coming together, I thought it would be better to uh, pick up Luke rather than start a a series in anything else. So, uh, Luke chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 19. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was led a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. I was recently listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, and he quoted an inscription that was found on a gravestone in Scotland, which read like this, Beneath this kirkyard stone lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt, who died one morning just at ten and saved a dinner by it. Takes a moment for that to drop, doesn't it? And that got me thinking about epitaphs that appear in gravestones, so I looked them up on the internet. One read, here lies the body of the dentist John Brown. He has filled his last cavity. The inscription on the tomb of Mel Blanc, the creator of the cartoon Bugs Bunny, reads, That's all, folks. One in Pennsylvania reads, Ellen Shannon, 26, fatally wounded March the 21st, 1870, by an explosion of a lamp filled with Danforth's non-explosive burning fuel. That was the ultimate revenge, uh, single the end of not only Ellen Shannon, but the Danforth non-explosive fuel company. The comedian Spike Milligans reads, I told you I was sick. But the most poignant I came across read like this. It was dedicated to the man's deceased wife. Now I know something you don't. Now I know something you don't. That's, he knew what lay beyond the grave, something he maintained that his wife didn't know. Well, she could have known and he could have known what lies beyond the grave because in this passage, Jesus tells us 
what lies beyond death. And as we pick up our studies in the Gospel of Luke, we come to this parable of the rich man and Lazarus where Jesus gives us some important information on death. And I want you to notice two things, the teaching that our Lord gives on death and then the reason, we're going to think about the reason for the rich man's condemnation. So first of all, the teaching that our Lord gives on death. I want you to notice from the the parable the certainty of death. Jesus tells a story of two contrasting lives, uh, uh, two men that live in this world. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man, we are told in verse 19, was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this man wasn't simply rich. He was fabulously rich. Purple was a status symbol uh, in the ancient world. Uh, The purple dye was extracted from 8,000 mussels that produced one gram of purple dye, and it was a symbol of status in the ancient world. But this man just didn't wear a purple stole around his neck, nor was his coat hemmed with purple. He was clothed in purple. His underclothes were made of fine Egyptian uh, linen. We're told that he lived in luxury, the NIV says, every day, that he fared sumptuously every day. Not a day passed without some great feast being held. In verse 20, the gate that's mentioned there was not the normal gate that people might have had to the entrance of their drives. It refers to an ornamental porch, Grecian pillars, uh, a, a huge a, elaborate affair that, ordained, uh, that ordained, uh, adorned palaces or temples. You see, material prosperity oozed out of every pore of this man, his clothes, his food, his home. He was rich. But notice that's all we are told. We're told nothing about his friends, We're told nothing about his achievements, not even his vices, just that he was rich, filthy rich, but that's all. The other man was the exact opposite. Look at verse 20. And at his gate was led a a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with that which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That word led is too gentle. Uh, the original carries the force of being thrown or being dumped at the gate. He had no fine clothes. The only thing that covered his back were the untreated sores that had erupted, maybe as a result of the malnutrition that he was experiencing. The mere sight of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table caused his mouth to, to water. The only real compassion that he experienced were from the main, or was from the mangy mongrels that licked his sores. So here we have two men, one who was fabulously rich, the other who was pitifully poor. One was a somebody in society, and the other was a nobody. One was looked up to, the other was looked away from. But both died. That's the point. Both died. Notice we're told that the rich man was buried and probably a lot of people attended his funeral, but we don't read, verse 22, of the uh, poor man of Lazarus being buried. He was probably dumped in the city dump in Gehenna. But both died. If there's anything certain in this life, it's death. 
Death is no respecter of persons. Rich, poor, popular, unpopular, known and unknown, a somebody or a nobody, all die. This world is a hospital, and everyone in it is a terminal case. As we said before, the statistics in death are frightening. One out of one dies. Death is a fact of life. All uh, are going to die, but very few live in the light and with the implications of that fact. Most people eat and drink and talk and carry on their lives as if they're going to live forever. But life is fragile. Solomon Ecclesiastes tells us it hangs by a single thread, and one day your heart will stop beating, your uh, body will stop breathing, and you will be led in the grave. No matter how high you may rise above the heads of your contemporaries or how wealthy you've become, no matter what influence you exercise over others, horizontally you're going to end up in the same place as everyone else six foot under. Now, it's a constant source of amazement to me that people think so little of death um, that they never consider death. Since nothing is more certain than death and nothing more uncertain as the time of dying, surely it makes sense to prepare for that inevitability. People will prepare for their holidays. They will prepare for retirement. They'll seek uh, to be as healthy as they, they can in order to prolong life. But the one thing that's certain, death itself, is the thing that they avoid. The certainty of death. The second thing I want you to notice is the reality of life after death. This parable clearly teaches us that death is not the end. Sometimes people refer to death as a great leveler. And in one sense, it is. But in another sense, it isn't. It's a great divider. It's a leveler in the sense that uh, it comes to all people. But it's not in the sense that all end up in the same place. Look at verses 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The personalities of these two dead men survived after death in a conscious state. One is sustained by God in a state of blessedness in the company of the redeemed, and the other is in a state of isolated anguish in hell. And the point very simply is this, that death is not the end, that man continues to exist consciously after death. You see, death is the separation of the body and the spirit, and our bodies are led in the ground and returned to dust, waiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when they will be raised and reunited with our spirits. But our spirits, our souls, our personalities, if you like, continue to exist after death in heaven or in hell. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 that our bodies return to the ground and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Do you remember Paul when he's uh, thinking of death in Philippians chapter 1? And he's thinking of 
whether it would be better for him to go on living or to die. And death at that point was a very real prospect for him. And uh, he says, I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Which is better by far. And if it's better by far, then there must be a state of consciousness after death. Because Paul wouldn't say it was better by far if he could continue in this life and enjoy fellowship with God and then face annihilation or soul sleep. How could that be better by far? The, uh, Paul speaks in, first, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. So there is this conscious state, that eternal state after death. The Bible teaches the reality of life after death. John Brown's body may lie molding in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Do you get the force of this? You have a never-dying soul that can never be extinguished or snuffed out. You will live forever in the presence of God or in the darkness of hell. And there will only be one brief interruption when our Lord returns and bodies are raised and reunited with spirits and then shut up forever with the Lord or forever without the Lord. The certainty of death. The reality of life after death. And then the finality of our destiny after death. Although I have already said that the intermediate state, the state between death and the coming of the Lord Jesus, is not the final abode of the Spirit, this parable makes it clear that in terms of heaven and hell, it is final. Look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not and be able uh, uh, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Although the condition is not final, there is a finality concerning the, the judgment. There is no bridge from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. When a person enters into heaven or hell, they enter it permanently. There are no second chances. There's no such place as purgatory. There's no movement from one to the other. The state of damned sinners, says Matthew Henry, is fixed by an irreversible and an unalterable sentence. A stone is rolled to the door of the pit which cannot be rolled back. The unrepentant are sealed forever. In that destiny, they are lost. That's why Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 4, anyone who is among the living has hope. As long as you live and have breath in your body, there is, there is hope as far as your eternal destiny is concerned. But once death comes and once the curtain falls, your, your destiny is fixed and sealed. The eternal destiny of your soul is not fixed after death or at death, but before death in life. Right? Knowing the certainty of death 
And knowing the reality of life after death and the uh, finality of your destiny after death, does it not make sense to prepare for death in the light of that? Are you prepared to reject the gospel and to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, reject the invitations of Christ and risk the eternal destiny of your soul because of your pride and because of that rejection? Today, the Bible says, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. So here we have the Lord's teaching on death. The second thing I want you to notice is are are the reasons for the rich man's condemnation. We must ask ourselves, why did the rich man receive such a terrible end and such an appalling judgment? Now, social activists and liberation theologians see this parable as a a, a spiritual uh, description of the victory of the working class over the exploitive ruling class. In other words, it's a kind of Marxist spiritual parable. Um, And the reason why Lazarus was rewarded was because he was poor, and the reason why the rich man was condemned uh, was because he was rich. Now, that kind of reasoning is very easy to answer, and we can answer it by the text. And the answer given is the presence of Abraham in heaven. The Bible makes it clear that at the end of his life, Abraham was extremely wealthy and a a powerful man. Abraham in heaven um, rules out this kind of naive Robin Hood theology that all rich people are bad and all poor people are good. The answer goes much deeper than that. Let me suggest three reasons to you why this rich man was condemned. First of all, he refused to listen to the Word of God. Look at verse 27 through to 29. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, these verses are very, very important because they teach us a lot about the sufficiency of Scripture. The rich man, realizing that his fate has been sealed, that there is no way he can cross from hell to heaven, asks that Lazarus might be sent back to warn his five brothers. Now, we might be tempted to think that he did that out of love and concern, but I think underlying that, there is a a selfishness that he wants to protect preserve himself from their accusations if they ended up in the same place as him. But notice Abraham's answer. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them heed the Word of God. And even if someone did rise from the dead, they wouldn't be convinced if they refused and rejected the Word of God. Like Dickens' novel, The Christmas Carol, this rich man is convinced that if somebody was to go back from uh, heaven or from hell and warn them that their Scrooge-like hearts would be broken and that they would be converted. No, says Jesus, if they fail to listen to the warnings in the Word of God, they will not listen to anything else. It's not 
signs and wonders and miracles, people coming back from the dead that will lead a person to faith. It is the Word of God. Jesus tells us about another Lazarus, a different Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, but all the Pharisees wanted to do, they weren't convinced, they wanted to put him to death all over again. Now, do you see what uh, the rich man is saying? He's not so concerned about his brothers, but I think he's making excuses for himself. But if, if someone goes back from the dead, they will be convinced. If somebody had come to me from the dead and warned me, I would be convinced. Now, the Bible makes this clear, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. All that you need to know about the gospel and about salvation is contained in this book. And if you refuse to listen to the Scriptures, nothing, absolutely nothing else will convince you. If you're going to be converted, you must begin by uh, studying the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, heeding the Word of God, accepting the invitations of the Word of God. If you don't listen to Scripture, you'll listen to nothing. What are you waiting for if you're not a Christian? You're waiting for flashing lights. You're waiting for ghosts from the past to warn you. You have the Word of God. You have everything you need to convince you of the truth of the gospel. He refused to listen to the Word of God. Secondly, he remained indifferent to his sin before God. You notice the prominence given to repentance in verse 30. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is an acknowledgement of and a turning from sin. This man, this rich man, realized in hell the necessity of personal repentance. That personal repentance was necessary for his entrance into heaven. And he, he, of course, realized that too late. One old Puritan said, hell is nothing more than truth known too late. There's no doubt in hell as to the truth uh, of the gospel. Now, we must ask ourselves what sin this, this man was guilty of. All we're told that he was, uh, is that he was rich. We don't read of any immorality, blasphemy, or, or theft. We're not told that he acquired his wealth by illegitimate or illegal means. What sin was he guilty of? Well, of course, he's, he's guilty of the, the sin that he had inherited uh, from Adam for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, that there's a bias and a tendency within in us to sin. But there's more than that. This man was not only condemned, wasn't condemned because of what he had done, but because of what he failed to do. There was a rich man lying at his gate, and he lifted not a finger to help that man. You see, sin is not just what you do. Sin is what you fail to do. The Shorter Catechism says, sin is any transgression of the law of God, or want of conformity to 
the law of God. It's not just what you do, it's what you fail to do. The prayer book, the Anglican prayer book, speaks about the sins of commission, things that you shouldn't do, but the sins of omission, things that that you should do, but you don't do. And that is sin. So sin is not just what you are. Sin is not just what you do. Sin is what you feel to do as well. And this man is condemned because he refused to face up to the problem of sin, to deal with the problem of sin, and to repent of that sin. And repentance is absolutely essential in coming to faith that we we need to acknowledge to God that what the Bible says about us is actually true, that we have sinned against Him and we have offended Him, that we have rebelled against Him. And until we face up to the problem of sin, we'll never realize that we need a Savior and we'll never turn to Jesus Christ because that's what repentance is. It's turning from and it's a turning to. So why was this man condemned? Because he refused to listen to the Word of God. Because he remained indifferent to his sin before God. And then thirdly, he rejected a personal relationship with God. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's a great debate in theological circles as to whether this is actually a parable or not. Is it historical fact or is it a parable? And the reason why people argue that it's a historical fact is that Lazarus has a name. He's called Lazarus. Now, if you think about it uh, a little bit more, you think of uh, this as the intermediate state where our spirits go to the presence, uh, into the presence of God, yet it talks about fingers, and it talks about thirst, and it talks about water. So I feel uh, myself that it is a parable. It is a parable. But there's a reason why Lazarus is given a name. And that's very significant, and it's very important. Because you will notice that the man, the rich man, has no name. He's, He's no name. He's an anonymous rich man. Now, presumably there wasn't a blank in his birth certificate. Presumably he had a name. He was a big name among his contemporaries. But Jesus gives him no name. He's a faceless millionaire. Now, Lazarus had a name. On earth, if anyone knew his name, they didn't care about his name. He was a nobody, a non-entity, a John Doe. He was somebody not worth knowing. Did you notice in the passage that we're told that the rich man was buried... But we don't read that Lazarus was buried. He's just dumped. He, he was a, a nobody. But somebody knew his name. God knew his name. A name, you see, is an instrument of personal relationship. To know someone's name is to distinguish that individual from the rest of humanity, to single them out from the crowd. And I believe that Jesus deliberately gave this fictional character, a name to show that he mattered to God. Jesus, by giving a name, is demonstrating that this man had a relationship with God. The rich man was rich. He was a big name. 
but he had no name before God. Lazarus was poor and nobody in the eyes of the world, but he is known personally to God. Remember the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Remember Jesus says he calls his sheep by name and they follow him. Jesus tells us his disciples to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. You, this, you see, the name indicated a relationship, a personal relationship with God. Lazarus was known by God. He was ignored by everyone else, but he was known by God. I want to ask you, does God know your name? Do you have that personal relationship with God? I remember hearing a story about the difference between the four nations in the uh, British Isles, you know, that uh, when two um, Irish men were marooned on a desert island and somebody rescued them ten years later, they were fighting. When two Scottish men were marooned on a desert island and were rescued ten years later, they'd built a still and they were drunk. When two Welshmen were, were um, marooned on a desert island uh, and were discovered ten years later, they'd formed themselves into a choir and they were singing. And when two Englishmen were stranded on a desert island and somebody located them ten years later, they were still waiting for an introduction. Well, have you been introduced to Jesus? Do you know Him? Does He know you? Has He called you by name? Have you listened to the Word of God, responded to the Word of God, acknowledged your sin before God, turned from that sin, and entered into a personal relationship with Him? Do you know Him? That's the challenge of this passage. The, the final destiny of our souls depends on our relationship with God. Amen.